Welcome to the Public Forums program of the Consortium for History of Science, Technology, and Medicine. This program brings together scholars, specialist commentators, and the general public to explore historical perspectives on contemporary issues. The following forum, titled Immortal Life, The Promises and Perils of Biobanking in the Genetic Archive, was recorded live in front of an audience at the American Philosophical Society. But the discussion continues online. We invite you to join us and add your voice to the conversation. Visit chstm.org slash immortal life, where you may view video from the event, add comments or questions in the discussion forum, read additional expert commentary, and access relevant resources. Hello, everyone. Welcome. Thank you for joining us. I'm Bob Akashrafi, director of the Consortium for History of Science, Technology, and Medicine. Thank you as well to the American Philosophical Society for hosting us and for co-sponsoring this event. And thank you especially to the Pew Charitable Trusts for their general support of our public event series. Preliminary is over. Um, let me introduce uh, 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 our chair for this event, Susan Lindy is Janice and Julian Baer's Professor of History and Sociology of Science at Penn, where she also chairs the Department of the History and Sociology of Science. She is author and editor of numerous books and articles on genetics, genomics, science and warfare, and Cold War science, including titles such as The Rise of the Genome, Map Your Own Genes, The DNA Experience, The Biological Anthropology of Living Human Populations, Moments of Truth in Genetic Medicine, The DNA Mystique, The Gene as a Cultural Icon. But more important than all that, she's also chair of the Consortium for the History of Science, Technology, and Medicine. So thank you for joining us. I hope you find this event interesting and illuminating. I look forward to your questions and discussion and to your contributions on our online forums and to seeing you at future events. Thank you. I'm really happy to be here, and I want to express my own gratitude to Pew for making it possible to, to uh, stage such an event where one of our hopes is that we can leverage public interest in the kinds of issues that um, are very well known, like the Henrietta Lacks case, to shed light on deeper questions of the roles of science in modern culture, modern society, and modern social life. And so many historians of science found um, the incredible public interest in the Henrietta Lacks story. We almost envied it. That is, how do we engage in a way that causes people to wish to learn more about the kinds of systems that Henrietta Lacks, that that case illuminates? So one of the questions we thought we'd raise and one of the issues we want to explore today is the question of immortality. Most of us probably have DNA or blood or something stored in some kind of a repository which could in theory be uh, used to revive us in some distant future time. If you have, were born after about 1963, almost certainly your blood was preserved as a part of the Guthrie test, which was the neonatal test introduced. In addition, there's um, tremendous interest today in 
DNA testing as a tool for genealogy. And so it is almost like a hobby. It's something um, you submit your saliva and you get back some data which is supposed to reveal your um, ethnic origins, your geographical origins. This is a very popular pastime. It's a sort of game or it's the consumption, what some people have called genotainment. It's not exactly science, but it, but it draws on scientific ideas and scientific technologies to market ideas about identity to the public at large. In addition, the modern collection and the explicit storage of biological samples is a huge enterprise today. And it's not just biological samples of human beings, it's also of animals, there are samples of plants. And there's an element to this storage which is something about preserving immortally, no matter what happens, the biological reality um, you know, of, of current, um, the current world. And so we, uh, historians have been interested in how and why these systems of biological samples, biosampling, came to be, who supports them, who is invested in them, who are the stakeholders, and what are the imaginations and the goals that they instantiate. What do you think you're doing when you pull together biological materials from large numbers of people and you set it aside for permanent storage? My own work in this question has looked at the biobanks that are um, preserved by the, uh, what's called the Radiation Effects Research Foundation. And that's the agency that studies the atomic bomb survivors. It used to be called the Atomic Bomb Casualty Commission. And almost from the beginning of its existence, biological materials and samples began to be collected. At first they were stored in formalin, they were um, dried in different ways, and then increasingly in the after the 70s they began to be frozen. And right now the, uh, the Radiation Effects Research Foundation has almost a million biological samples, all taken from persons who were exposed to the radiation of the atomic bombs. And those samples are seen as a permanent and incredibly plastic resource for a wide range of different kinds of scientific research. So scholars in our field are interested in these questions and they also have implications for individual consumers, for everyone who is engaged in the healthcare delivery system where their biological materials can be um, preserved but also perhaps used in novel ways in the future. And so what we hope we can start today is a discussion about this that draws on history but also thinks about contemporary concerns and also how those contemporary concerns and historical concerns animate a certain kind of future. They, they imagine a certain future. So our first speaker is gonna be Joanna Radin and she is assistant professor of the history of medicine at Yale University. Her 2017 book, Life on Ice, A History of New Uses for Cold Blood, explores these issues and looks at how indigenous activism around the preserva preservation of blood and other materials provides new ways to consider the ethical dimensions of long-term storage, use, plasticity, generativity, whatever we wanna call that. She's interested in the history of forward-looking projects in biomedicine, ecology, and anthropology in the 20th century, and in the politics of preservation and reuse. 
and her current research is investigating the ways that science fiction has shaped ideas about the future of biomedicine, uh, shaped it and reflected it. So, Joanna. Hi. Um, thank you so much, Susan, and thank you to Babak and the consortium for having me. I was actually a fellow um, in the consortium when I was a graduate student, and it was a really um, important part of my uh, entrance into a scholarly community beyond my graduate community. And the ability to be at Penn as a graduate student um, was an incredible opportunity, especially because there's so many resources here um, in the city for doing the kind of work that I'm going to tell you about today. Um, so I guess I'll start by saying I never planned to become a historian of freezers. Um, that was not the plan. Um, and um, what I was interested in was in how questions about human biological variation, how questions about identity, how questions about what it means to be human get made. Um, and when I scratched at that question, it drew blood. And when I looked for the blood, I found it in a freezer. Um, and that's what made me realize that I needed to understand the history and the origins of systems of freezing. So you know, you can tell a story that's like from time immemorial, humans have been concerned with immortality and questions of preserving life. But it's really only after the Second World War, for a bunch of reasons, that freezing kind of takes on a new sort of momentum across the life sciences, across food chains, um, you know, and really changes the world. Um, so what I want to tell you about today um, is, is this book um, that, I, that Susan um, mentioned that I just finished writing and give you a little bit of insight insight into the story I was trying to tell, and then end by um, talking about some of the questions that I see that opening up, um, not just for the particular stories of preservation of blood, but for freezing of all kinds, freezing of whole human bodies. I can't give a talk without someone asking, so if you've got that question, I've got some answers. Um, but hopefully to help you see the ways in which these technologies that almost seem so mundane as to be invisible um, radically transform how we make knowledge, how we live our lives. So if I can figure out how to advance the slide. Oh, there we go. So we all know who this is? Great. OK, I knew I was going to have informed audience. And so there's a way in which um, my story also begins with Henrietta Lacks, not necessarily Henrietta Lacks the person, but Henrietta Lacks, um, the kind of central actor in this book, um, this really, this sensation, The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks. This book was published um, right in the middle of my dissertation uh, research. And the first time I heard about it, I was on my way to um, begin uh, spending time in um, a laboratory that called itself a serum archive, serum being the liquid component of blood. I was there to understand how people in anthropology, and in particular biological anthropologists, were make, taking old blood, frozen blood, and repurposing it um, for use in the genomic age. And so I have a vivid memory of sitting in my car um, in the parking lot, about to go in for my first day hearing Rebecca Sklute on NPR telling this story, and I got chills. Um, and Henrietta Lacks continued to haunt me um, for the time that I did this research because she took a topic that had previously, almost just the day before, been incredibly esoteric and specific and brought it into the spotlight. Um, and I realized that I had a story to tell, not just about Henrietta Lacks, but that there were millions and millions of other kinds of individuals whose blood was also being stored in, um, in freezers around the world. And maybe it didn't have quite the 
kind of sensational um, story that Henrietta Lacks did, but did that make it any less important? Um, what did it mean to think about who all these bodies silently being preserved in freezers? So I had to go back and figure out, well, where did this freezing come from? Why did people, how did it, the freezer find its way into the lab? I wasn't sure. Um, and I wound up going back into the scientific literature. And this is text from an advertisement that appeared in a kind of a journal, the AIBS Bulletin, um, American Institute of Biological Sciences, a kind of bulletin that would have gone around um, to, you know, give people updates on what, you know, new news in the biological sciences. And this was an ad. Um, and I was sort of like, whoa, stopping the biological clock because we all hear about the biological clock right and what do we think of when we think of the biological clock aging, aging. what kind of aging specifically fertility like women's aging now this had nothing to do with that um, this was a kind of first time I was encountering the idea of the biological clock in a different context and you can see here the advertisement said suspended animation stopping and starting the biological clock at will has been one of man's age-old dreams including Jules Verne science you know an early science fiction author today through cryobiology which is the science of frosty life um, scientists are slowing down and even theoretically stopping the chemistry of life processes and, um, and this advertisement um, went on to say um, that it was actually cattle breeders who were um, innovating this technology. So it did have something to do with fertility after all. It turned out that there were cattle breeders in Wisconsin um, who were um, experimenting with freezing bull semen. The idea being that um, if you wanted to scale up your agricultural enterprise, it was a whole lot easier to send around a vial of semen than it was to ship the bull itself, right? Um, so this was the first calf named Frosty, um, born from semen that was frozen at American Breeder Service, which is just an incredible place, and I could tell, give a whole talk just about American Breeder Service. But what was remarkable to me is that here I was, interested in the efforts to um, use freezing to preserve human biological variation from people around the world, yet the inventors of this technology, the cattle breeders, were interested in using it to reduce variation, to standardize herds, to create one kind of maybe, or several kinds of ideal cows, um, that it, which basically they did. Um, American Breeder Service has transformed um, the, the cattle industry, and that's a great dissertation for anyone who's thinking about things to do. Um, now, also, this story just got um, more and more interesting when I found out um, that one of the leading, so if the cattle breeders had the kind of technical know-how and the practice, um, it was a Catholic priest, this guy here, and for those of you who are interested in social theory, I think he looks a lot like Michel Foucault here. Um, but this is this is um, um, a, a, a Catholic priest named Basil Lujay, um, who um, was the founder, considered to be the founder of the field of cryobiology. He was very interested in understanding. He wasn't. He didn't start out caring about applications, but he wanted to understand what is the difference between life and not life. And so he started by asking about not life. And he, want, he discovered that freezing was a technology that would allow him to test the limits of life, to ask questions about immortality. Now, you can imagine my head just exploded. I'm like, okay, a Catholic priest using blood and freezers to create his own kind of secular relics to test the limits between life and not life. And curiously, um, he never actually addressed the religious implications of what he was doing to the point where even his own students were like, 
you know, it's kind of weird, um, you know? Um, and I think that this goes to some, a question, a discussion that we could have. Here we have someone, and I know too that he even participated in Vatican II, um, you know, and so he, he was engaged in what was going on in the church and, and changes that were happening. But it, I think it's very interesting that here was this deeply learned man who had a real deep sense of morality um, and ethics who chose to bracket that off from his experiments in the manipulation of life. And as I explore in the book, um, I'm interested in the ways in which, what would it have meant if he felt like it was okay to talk about his religion as he was doing his science? What kinds of different ways might this massive domain of biobanking unfolded? What ways might have Henry La Henrietta Lacks's fate and legacy been different? Now, this is where I get interested. This is where I came back to my story in biological variation. So we got cattle breeders and a Catholic priest. Um, they're developing these technologies, and I, I should actually add, um, it's even stranger because Louyer went to work at American Breeder Service. He was hired by the cattle breeders to help them improve their technology. They built him a lab and he went there um, and they partnered together. Um, and so that made this strange place, this cattle breeding farm in northern, in, in Madison, Wisconsin, um, a clearinghouse for information about um, using freezing technology for all kinds of things. Now, we're at the middle of the 20th century, we're in the 60s. This is also a moment when um, ecologists and um, people start really being aware that the chemists and the physicists might have messed things up a little bit. Um, we get Rachel Carson in Silent Spring, we get the bomb and the effects of radiation, um, and a real sense, in, in ways I think um, not unlike today, there's a recurrence of these anxieties um, that, that humans had um, participated through their kind of not fully considered use of science um, to um, creating, conducting what one scientist, Barry Commoner here, an important ecologist and public intellectual said, an experiment on ourselves. Now, biologists um, around this time started to think, okay, well, what can we do? What can we do? There are enormous problems. It's gonna take us decades to figure out what's even going on. Um, what can we do? And interestingly, they chose to freeze. Um, so scientists, um, and this is from epidemiology to biological anthropology to human biology, started reaching for the freezer as a way to collect blood, in particular from indigenous peoples, as a kind of snapshot of humans that they saw as existing in harmony with their environments or um, relatively um, uninflected by modernity, or perhaps even who hadn't experienced certain kinds of diseases that were circulating increasing, in increasing ways. So one of these scientists, very influential, important epidemiologist named John Rodman Paul, um, who actually um, did you know, a number of, of really important um, things, especially around polio. Um, that's probably what he's best known for. But he's one of the first people who talked about the potential new uses for um, cold blood, imagining a future in which blood samples, if preserved, may, such preserved sera, may become available for various purposes when the need for new information to be derived from a given collection arises one, two, or even three decades hence. Actually, these sera may even be used for tests as yet undiscovered. So Paul went to Alaska um, and he wanted to understand groups of um, communities there who he um, believed hadn't yet 
um, experienced polio. Um, and I want to point out that this was a moment when nobody was talking about collecting DNA. Um, nobody was talking about the genome. People were talking about antibodies. Um, and in sera, in blood sera, the liquid component of blood, they could find these antibodies. And so he thought that if he could find this blood um, that either did or didn't have traces of um, a certain strain of the, the Lansing strain of polio, that would be profoundly um, important and interesting. And at one point he even says, if I can find even one example, um, one sample of Eskimo sera that has um, this trace, it will be worth its weight in uranium. So you see this kind of like Cold War logic as um, people are stockpiling weapons. These scientists are stockpiling blood samples as a certain kind of resource protection for the future, okay? Um, so at the same time that Paul is filling up um, artificial, you know, mechanical freezers with blood samples, there are also people who are looking to nature's freezer for old samples. So this is um, another um, epidemiologist named Johan Holten, who had the idea that if you could find bodies who had been preserved in the permafrost, um, who had, um, you know, died during the 1918 flu epidemic, perhaps we could use the new emerging molecular techniques to figure out why it was so deadly. And he actually went to um, a town in Alaska called Brevik Mission and convinced people to dig up bodies, okay? Um, now, on the one hand, it's, an, it's methodologically ingenious, right, to even think to do that. On the other hand, try to imagine someone coming to your family and saying, um, you know, we really think that we might be able to understand um, Ebola or AIDS, maybe. Um, we need to dig up your ancestor. Um, and I think it's miraculous that people in Brevik Mission allowed him to. The tragedy is that he was unable to actually find what he was looking for at that moment. But it, this part is part of what I'm saying, this quest for the as yet unknown. Um, you know, what kinds of questions could you ask once you started thinking about life being preserved, be it in, an, in, a, um, in a tundra um, in the Arctic North or in an artificial freezer? Now, it took until 1997, um, with the advent of polymerase chain reaction, PCR, which really radically changed the way we understand um, and, and can know um, from DNA, um, two scientists at the Armed Forces Institute of Pathology um, realized that actually they had the technology now to understand the virulence, um, or, to or at least to sequence um, the 1918 flu. And Johan Halton, who had gone to the permafrost, was still alive. Um, so the idea was that they would partner and they did succeed in digging up, again, these bodies um, and sequencing um, the DNA and finding out information. Now, a question that we might explore in the discussion um, is if it's possible to understand the impact of an epidemic as severe as the 1918 flu um, just on the basis of biology alone. What other kinds of factors, like the um, poor nutrition and decimation of resources after the end of World War I, um, issues of social inequality, the way in which um, the, the, the disease um, killed people so quickly in ways that it broke social ties. There's more to the story. But this blood was used to answer, and these resources, these preserved tissues, were used to answer questions that scientists continue to be able to ask. Okay. So, that's one kind of way in which these materials were used. Another was in the realm of um, um, biomedical, uh, sort of broad-ranging biomedical research. Carlton Gadgesek and Brooke Blumberg. And um, for those of you who were mixing in the room before, um, there was a huge portrait of Barry Blumberg. He had been, uh, he was 
did many, many things, um, but was the president, um, past president of the APS, of the American Philosophical Society. And he, he and Gajasek shared the Nobel Prize in 1976 for work that they had done using um, each of them. They didn't work together, but using large collections of tissues they had collected mostly from indigenous peoples around the world to make breakthroughs in biomedical science. Gajasek um, did research on um, Kuru, which was later identified as a prion, and Brooke Blumberg, does anyone know what Blumberg did? Hepatitis B, hepatitis B. And so what's interesting, especially about Blumberg, as he says in his memoir, he didn't even know what he was looking for. He just knew that if he could get enough of these blood samples, he might be able to use new molecular technologies to figure something out. And part of his um, genius was to realize um, and to be able to discern those patterns and figure out what's, what happened. And he collected tens of thousands of blood samples that the last time I checked were still at Fox Chase Cancer Center. I'm not really sure what's happened to them. Um, but he, this was his life's work, creating these kinds of collections. Now, Blumberg and Gadgesek both participated. They weren't, these weren't just one-offs. You know, they won the Nobel Prize like not by accident. This was part of a large-scale research agenda that was encapsulated in this program called the International Biological Program. Um, and this was a response. Remember I showed you that picture before, a very commoner on the cover of Time with anxieties about a changing world and environmental degradation. Um, these scientists um, and, and Blumberg and Gadgesek both participated said, we gotta like set some, we gotta establish some baselines. Like things are getting more and more polluted or contaminated or changed by the day. Um, you know, we need to kind of just like make a new ground to figure out what's happening to human bodies, what's happening to human biology. Um, and they led um, various kinds of expeditions to go out and collect blood from um, people around the world, in particular indigenous peoples living in communities that were remote from their labs, the idea is that they would learn something from the blood of these people, not their knowledge, but from their blood, about um, how they had adapted to environments that were radically changing. And it was also, um, there was a tragic dimension to this collection enterprise, because these scientists really believed that forces of um, acculturation and modernization and urbanization were going to um, lead these communities to become extinct. They did not, um, they did not believe um, that indigenous peoples would survive. And so the freezing of their blood was almost like creating a, time a biological time capsule. The salvage of blood from indigenous peoples might participate in the salvation of members of um, more cosmopolitan techno-scientific societies. So I show this here. This is not an excerpt from Wes Anderson's The Life Aquatic, um, but it could have been. Um, so this was one of the ways in which these scientists went around collecting um, blood and, and, and other tissues using um, this ship called the RV Alpha Helix, which was paid for by the NSF, but sponsored by Scripps Oceanographic Institute. Um, and it was meant to be a way for scientists, this was supposed to be their like cyclotron. Like the physicists had their big technology and the biologists, they wanted something big too. And so they got a boat. Um, and they were supposed to be able to take the lab into the field. This idea that they were going to be collecting these blood samples and they could analyze them in real time. But because the scientists were really not sure what they were looking for, and they were more interested perhaps in a natural historical perspective of collecting rather than doing the experiments right then, the ship functioned um, almost always as a floating freezer. There were a lot of different freezing capabilities on board, and I've actually had the chance, if any, has anyone, is anyone here, did anyone here go on the Alpha Helix? 
Okay, sometimes people say yes, and then I get to hear what it was like. Um, but, you know, the outfit, it had like a drawing room, um, it had a music room, um, it had, you know, a chef, like it was this very interesting, I mean, it wasn't like a cruise, but it wasn't also like a very, um, it was fascinating, it was fascinating, fascinating, I could, that's a whole other talk. Um, but what everyone I talked to, and this is my sense from reading the archives, but everyone I talked to who was on the Alpha Helix was like, yeah, nobody really used it as a lab. Um, we kind of just used it to get from place to place and then freeze, you know, get materials and bring it back. Um, and the Alpha Helix was used both to collect non-human materials, but three of its voyages, and they were all connected to the International Biological Program, were used to collect um, human, um, human blood samples. Um, so one of the voyages, uh, two of the voyages were in um, the, the Pacific, and this was a region, remember, where um, there had, it was the major theater of war um, during the Second World War, and so a lot of the people, like Blumberg, had been in the Navy, um, he didn't go on the Alpha Helix, but um, Gajasek did. They knew that there were places they could go, ports they could go to where they could get liquid nitrogen or where they could ship samples to colleagues in Australia. Um, and so a lot of this work happened in places like Papua New Guinea, the Solomon Islands, and Indonesia. Um, and this was a, um, um, a kind of fascinating situation. I actually spent time in the lab of one scientist who showed me his frozen collections, and he said that at one point he had 0.01% of the population of Papua New Guinea in his freezer, which is, doesn't sound like a lot, until, for, but for those of you who are maybe more statistically inclined, you can, that's like a lot, that's like pretty um, dramatic. Um, here's a picture of Gajasek when he would go to the town, um, to the village, and find the chief. Um, a lot of times I get questions about informed consent. Um, now, the rules that we have today are, are more contemporary rules. Now, this doesn't mean that people did whatever they wanted um, and they weren't respectful of the people that they encountered. Um, all of the scientists that I studied tried very hard um, and approached these communities with with good intentions. Gadgetsek is a special case that some of you may be familiar with, and if you're interested um, in knowing more about him, I highly recommend Warwick Anderson's The Collector of the Collectors of Lost Souls, which is all about um, Gadgetsek. Um, but you know, there was this effort to negotiate with the communities to um, convince them to say, you know, we're doing this important scientific research. Um, we're not sure that it will benefit you, but um, we have physicians with us who can provide medical care, um, and we're happy to, to do that for you. And oftentimes, people would agree. Now, this is where things get interesting ethically, um, is that the scientists would say, well, there's relatively risk to you in this moment. I'm, I'm skilled at this. I'm just going to take some blood. Um, it, will hurt, it might hurt a little bit, but there was, I found no um, traces in the archives or anywhere else of a, a communication that we will freeze this blood for the future and that your blood may outlive you, okay? Um, here's another example of a scientist, James Neal, whose papers are also here, um, who was very active in the Atomic Bomb Casualty Commission, um, who drew blood from members of communities um, in South America. Um, and, uh, this is um, from a community called the Chavante. He also worked very much with um, a community called the Yanomami. Um, okay, and so that was the kind of picture of the past. This is the serum archive that I was telling you about at the beginning of my story. Um, this is um, what it looked like. You can see it's hard to, it's hard to um, kind of read. Um, oh, I didn't mean to do that. Okay. I'm not even going to try to use this technology. Um, but in, the, in, the, in your top left, um, it says Serum Archive Lab. Um, and I was fascinated. It wasn't called a biobank. It wasn't called um, 
a collection. It was called an archive. And so I'm being trained as a historian. I'm like, well, wait, I work in archives. This is an archive too. And I got really interested in the ways in which scientists were reading um, or trying to use new genomic technologies to read these old blood samples as their own kinds of texts. What kinds of stories could you tell? And now when I went to the serum archive and I got to learn how to be um, a serum archivist, and here's a picture of a few of them. They wouldn't let me work with human blood, but I worked with pig blood. Um, and so I, because I wanted to just see what, what is, what's involved in, in this work. Now, I thought that everybody there was going to be talking about human biological variation, because those were the blood samples they had, but they weren't. And this is just an example of what these samples were, look, what, what they were looking like. They had been in the freezer for decades. They were desiccated. Um, they didn't have, you know, the liquid had sort of like slowly leached out of them. Um, and I just show you this to say, and they're in glass vials, some of which cracked, like one of the technicians described it as a bloody mess um, in the freezer. Um, but just to tell you that when you see something like this, you think, well, you know what? The freezer isn't a time capsule. Um, it's not perfect suspended animation. Things are happening. Things are changing. The just time scale is being really radically transformed. Um, here's um, a, a lab freezer. This image is in the book, and I just there's so much going on here. This is just an ordinary like Sears freezer or refrigerator freezer that was there as a holding area. And it's, I want to direct your attention to the wipe off board that says blood will tell, but it often tells too much. All right. Nobody would cop to having written it, but I went back to that lab over several years and it was there. Okay. So that message was assigned to me that the technicians, the people and the scientists doing this work realized that they were dealing with an unwieldy kind of process that um, some of them said, you know, offered their own interpretation. Well, you could find out from blood that, you know, you're not, you're, your dad isn't really your dad, or you're not related to your family in the ways that you are. Um, you know, you could be convicted of a crime. Um, you know, you could, um, you could find out you had a disease that you didn't know you had. You know, that blood can tell. Blood has stories in it. Um, and I also just love that it says, you know, no food or drink, <laughs> no food or drink, unless there was any confusion. Okay, so, so I said, I thought everyone was going to be talking about human biological variation, but what I was so just astounded to find that nobody in this particular lab was all that interested in it at that moment. They were interested in this thing they called mosquito anthropology. And what they realized is that blood samples that had been collected on the alpha helix um, not only had human DNA that could be mined, but had malaria DNA in it. Actually, whole malaria organisms, plasmodia, malaria that had been collected before it could evolve drug resistance. So this was this kind of actual time capsule or portal to the past. And people um, were being encouraged to look in these collections of blood that were in the freezer um, to see if maybe mosquitoes themselves had accidentally been squished in and preserved. But the idea that if you could understand these old blood samples, maybe you could understand how malaria developed resistance to chloroquine and maybe you could save the world. And this is a paper that was published, and I just love the title, Flashback to the 1960s, um, this idea that the freezer could kind of rescale relations to time and make new kinds of questions possible. Um, fascinating paper. And I'm going to end here, um, although there's much more I could say, but I'm going to end here with Brooke Blumberg, because as this technology um, has taken off and as genomics has allowed, is this, am I okay on time? Right. Yeah. Um, has, has allowed um, increasing an explosion of new uses for old blood. Think about personalized genomics, right, and the promises there, and the ancestry testing, um, and infectious disease research. 
blood samples, as these frozen blood samples um, persist, there are more and more and more uses um, being articulated for them. And um, Barry Blumberg, who had made his life work collecting these materials, realized that, wait a minute, what's going to happen when I die? What he was acutely aware of his own mortality. Who was going to care for these materials? The freezers themselves, I learned, are very fussy and finicky. And those of you who work in a lab or manage the freezers, like they go off when, like when you're on, on at Christmas or on the holidays, and someone has to come in and deal with it. Um, they're fussy. They need care, even though they're supposed to be um, sort of just these machines that keep things going in this stillness. And so he um, appealed to science and got a, there was a story where he talked about the, what he called the legacy plan, urging scientists who had made their life's work out of the collections of these materials to think about how they were going to make sure these collections persisted so that they can continue to participate in the stewardship and the, and the salvation of society. Now at the same time, members of communities like the Yanomame who did not go extinct, did not disappear, found out that their blood had been frozen and continued to persist in freezers. And they were like, wait, hold up. We were okay with you coming and collecting our blood, but we didn't know this was going to happen. Um, we want it back. Um, and so what someone like Baruch Blumberg considered a form of blood as a form of latent life with this immortal potential, members of um, groups like the Yanomami and many others regarded this as a kind of incomplete death of their ancestors and said, you know what, we want these materials um, back. And so in, it, it was in 2000 that the Yanomami, members of the Yanomami said, you know what, we want this blood back. And it took um, until 2015 um, for blood samples to be returned. Um, now, I'm not a bioethicist. It's not my job to create policies to say this is good or this is bad, this is what we should do, what we shouldn't do. But as a historian, showing you um, this complex technical domain and scientists who try to imagine the future yet fail to um, imagine certain things. And I think all of us, you imagine even what a, something you're looking forward to or something you're fearing, you imagine in a million different ways and then it happens in like the one way that you never thought of, right? Um, and this is what happens with freezing too. And so where I guess I want to end um, is thinking about the real, the politics of this mode of knowledge production. Who gets to decide the future? Who's getting to decide, not just for indigenous peoples, but the future of our own bodies, which persist um, in freezers around the world? Um, they're probably getting to be close to a billion samples in the United States alone, and that doesn't even include um, materials like um, um, umbilical cords um, or um, in tissues from non-humans like endangered species and things like that. Um, so we're in a moment now where we really have to step back and, ex and revisit the ways we've thought about um, questions like informed consent, the ways we think about what it means to participate in research as scientists both at, and also as people seeking healthcare and seeking cures from biomedicine. So I'll leave this here, but I think um, my colleague Projeet is going to pick up some of the issues um, and the colonial politics that come from this mode of knowledge production, but I'll look forward to our discussion. You know, some years ago, I gave my blood to, I gave my saliva to the Coriel Institute, and I signed a form, and, and I kind of said, it said, we can do whatever we want with your materials for all time. I signed up, so who knows? Um, I'm happy to introduce my colleague, Projeet Mukherjee, and Projeet is going to address the, some of these related questions more in terms of 
the indigenous groups that are subjected to this kind of research. He's associate professor of the history and sociology of science in my department at the University of Pennsylvania. His books include Nationalizing the Body and Doctoring Traditions. And his work focuses on issues of marginality and marginalization both within science and through science, which often plays a role in sustaining hierarchies of human populations. His current research is on the history of human difference and race in 20th century South Asia, and he's interested in how the politics of race, indigeneity, and biocolonialism have influenced history. So welcome, <coughs> Prajit. Thank you very much, uh, Susan and uh, Babak, for organizing this. Uh, Joanna is a great friend, but she's always a uh, very, very tough act to follow. So I'm not even going to try. Uh, and I should also apologize that I have no pictures for you. Uh, in my defense, I was trained in good old England where my supervisor told me, if you need to show pictures when you lecture, that means you've not learned to lecture. So, <laughs> so that's not quite true. I don't subscribe to that. But I'm, unfortunately, I didn't learn the right skills at the right time. So <laughs> uh, anyway. Uh, I also, my story does not have any uh, freezers in it, unfortunately. It's not that cool. Uh, it's, uh, uh, it's, but it is, uh, it does have lots of sunny sea beaches in exotic places. And what better exotic, uh, sunny, warm place to start with than Sacramento, California. So my story starts actually uh, in December 2014 in Sacramento, California, where over two full days, the Instructional Quality Commission, IQC for short, held public meetings. Now the IQC was previously known as the Curricular Developmental, Development and Supplemental Materials Commission. Good, that's a mouthful. And it was formed way back in 1927 as an advisory body to the State Board of Education in California. Now, their task is to, from time to time, review uh, school curricula and to advise changes uh, in the school textbooks. Every year, the IQC takes up one particular subject and it reviews the, uh, all the school books on that subject. In 2014, their topic was history and social science. And they took up all the school books in California uh, that were teaching uh, history and social science. Now, for, before they met on the 18th and 19th of December 2014, uh, the IQC held public, uh, uh, or asked for solicited public um, recommendations for changes for two whole months. You could email them, you could write a letter to them. And they received over 700 recommendations for changes. A good many of these were from uh, two people, Suhag Shukla and Murali Balaji, who represented the Hindu American Foundation. Now, half for short. Now, half is not new to this game of challenging school books in California. About a decade back, they had gone to court, taking the school uh, board of California, uh, the SBE, that's the State Board of Education in California, to court, asking for school books to be changed because they felt some aspects of it were anti-Hindu and hurt uh, their sentiments. The court, uh, the, they were unsuccessful in court, and partly through the um, active participation against their case by Dalit activists that are the so-called lower caste groups in India uh, and their uh, activists and secular um, Hindus, the people of Hindu background or people from India, organizations which had challenged the HAF's attempts to what they call brownwash history. 
uh, and they, they wanted these things to be there. But that's a, that's a long story. I'm not going to go into that. Um, there's a lot of uh, that's a lot that's been written about it. I'm just going to quote uh, Rowena Robinson and Vinita Sinha, uh, who point out that uh, this, uh, even though the legal challenge about a decade back failed, I'm quoting them. Many scholars were deeply troubled by the attempts of these Hindu groups to write out protest, resistance, and uncomfortable truths from Hinduism's past. End quote. It was perhaps to combat this kind of opposition that in 2014, when Half uh, challenged the school books again, they cited in their support incontrovertible scientific evidence in the form of genetic research. So they submitted uh, some articles in which they t the main point of contention, or one of the main points of contention, was something called the Aryan invasion theory. Now, it has long been held by uh, historians of South Asia that around 2,000 years before the Common Era, that's the second uh, millennium BCE, uh, there was a dramatic demographic shift in the Indian subcontinent. People who spoke Sanskrit and rode uh, horses came in and displaced the people who had lived there before them, who were usually identified with the Indus Valley civilization, which was largely urban but did not have horses and did not speak Sanskrit. That they were pushed out and these new people took over. Now, there's both linguistic and archaeological evidence that backs this up. Uh, they also uh, many people also believe, many scholars, most scholars, I would say, still believe that the caste system that unfortunately has been around in South Asia for quite some time has its roots in this event, that the Sanskrit speakers who come in occupy the upper castes and the people they pushed out are basically people who've been labeled as lower caste. And so this, is, this has been a long-standing controversial issue. And while many people have now given up on the idea of a single Aryan invasion, they think more in terms of a series of interlinked migrations, that there was a demographic shift at this point, like I said, linguistic and archaeological evidence points to this. However, in recent times, uh, there's been a huge rise of populist Hindu politics. I mean, we know that, uh, of course, that populism is on the rise everywhere across the planet, and uh, it's, India is no different. And there was a huge rise in Hindu populist politics, which found this to be a difficult charge to uh, deal with, precisely because the so-called Dalits or lower castes were numerically very large, and in an electoral democracy, you can't um, sort of rule them out. And my friend Yulia Egerova has written a lot about how this uh, genetic discourse has been played out in the Indian, Indian media with Dalit activists saying that the upper castes are foreigners, they shouldn't even be allowed to hold positions in government, and the upper castes then turning around and trying to deny that this uh, demographic shift ever happened. So they instead tried to claim that we're all autochthonous, we all emerged from the same soil, there's no difference whatsoever. So sort of interestingly, a claim that looks like uh, uh, inclusive claim is actually a claim which is articulated by a conservative political position in India. Now, all this very complicated Indian politics comes into Sacramento, California. Why? Of course, there's the IT industry, lots of Indians there, their kids going to school, they have a stake at it, etc., etc. Uh, I don't need to go into that. However, what 
this particular uh, set of petitions made to the IQC suggested was that all references to this kind of demographic shift identified as the Aryan Invasion Theory or AIT as they wanted to call it should be deleted and instead something called the Urheimat uh, Theory should be introduced. Now, I have been working on the history of race science in India for a while, but I'd never heard of the Urheimat theory. So uh, some friends of mine who are also academics and who were trying to combat this HAF uh, effort in uh, 2014 wrote to me asking me to evaluate the genetic evidence. They're like, we're humanists. We don't really know what to do with this. Can you have a look at what's going on here? Now, when I saw it, they had submitted two academic articles as well in support of this so-called Urheimat theory. One of them was not really an academic article, it was a journalistic piece, so it was not really something I, should, uh, I wanted to spend time with. But the other one I found interesting. Uh, it was written by an academic uh, who's a professor at Shawnee State University in Ohio. Uh, she held not one but two PhDs, uh, one in history and one in religious studies. And she had a lengthy genetics uh, argument saying, uh, establishing this so-called Urheimat theory. Now what this Urheimat theory basically meant when I read her article was that uh, it, that Pleistocene humans came out of Africa, but after that, everybody somehow went to India and lived in India till they evolved into something called the anatomically modern humans. And everybody else since then have migrated out of India. So India is the Urheimat, the ultimate home of all anatomically modern humans, apart from the Africans. So uh, in this article, for instance, this uh, Professor Vemsani uh, repeatedly talks of India as being the the home, uh, the original home of all non-African humanity. And she insists that while um, in the Pleistocene period we may, might have come out of Africa, that's not really important. What is important is that we evolved in India and then everybody spread out of India. She also has this rather incredible claim that the taller you are, the further you are from the point where uh, modern anatomical humans emerged. So one up for all short people and bad luck for all the tall people. So uh, anyway, this incredible argument was supposedly uh, based on incontrovertible scientific evidence, which is DNA evidence. So I was like, wow, this is something I've never heard of. So let me try and look at what is this evidence that she's citing. Now it turns out that the uh, evidence is actually the, uh, is based on the DNA of four Jarawa uh, tribesmen and 24 Ungay tribesmen who come from a group of islands called the Andaman and Nicobar Islands, which is in the Bay of Bengal. So if you, if you can imagine the map of India, there are a sort of string of little islands in the Bay of Bengal. Those are the Andaman Nicobars. And the Jarawa and the Ungay people are some of the tribes that live on these islands. So, uh, so four Jarawas and 24 Ungay people, their DNA was the clinching evidence for this on the basis of which she was making this claim. Now, when I tracked down, a, uh, so I wanted to see who had actually, because she had actually, uh, her two PhDs were in history and in religious studies, and I don't have two, but I have one PhD and my history PhD didn't train me in genetics. So I wanted to find out what was the actual genetic study here. 
Uh, and of course, thankfully, the, the, uh, the good points of reading academic articles, there's a sort of ponderous footnote at the end of the sentence that allows you to track where that came from. So I dug up the article. It was a genetic article. Uh, it was a uh, piece uh, published uh, by geneticists. A combined team of actually uh, geneticists from uh, India, uh, from New Zealand, and from America again. So uh, a joint group of geneticists had done this study. They had actually uh, analyzed way more than just the 24 people that were being, or 28 people that were being talked of. Their material was divided in two groups. One was the so-called modern uh, DNA samples, which included about 102 blood samples taken pretty much along the lines that Joanna was just talking about, uh, but much more recently uh, from an assortment of tribal peoples in the Andamans, and four buccal swabs, that's like spit taken from your cheeks. Um, so a total of 106 samples. Uh, but along with this was another set of data that they had analyzed, which was uh, called the historical uh, archive. And this goes back to uh, some of the stuff that Joanna was talking about, but not blood in this case, but rather hair samples. Hair samples that had been collected by a famous British anthropologist, uh, Alfred Radcliffe Brown, in, uh, between 1906 and 1908. So way before the First World War, when Andaman Nicobar were very much part of the uh, British Empire, uh, here was a young uh, anthropologist who had gone and snipped off some hair from uh, some of these people. And these had ended up uh, in his collection after his death. They were part of the so-called Duckworth collection at Cambridge University, UK. And uh, these material, this had been half the uh, set, the total set that this new team had reanalyzed. So on the one hand, they had some new material uh, in the form of buccal swabs and blood samples, and they had these old hair samples from which they had um, extracted DNA. So uh, if you're going to talk about immortality, that's, that's uh, of course, here you have a case of uh, sure immortality, where I'm sure most of the people whose hair was collected in 1906 must have been dead by the time this study was done. But they had remained, and they had, uh, they had not only remained, they had traveled to England, the hairs had remained in Cambridge till they were studied again. Uh, the buckle swabs and the blood samples also traveled around the world. They went to Dunedin in New Zealand. They went to uh, Stanford in California. Uh, they uh, were analyzed at Cambridge once more. So. What struck me about this whole story was the incredible mobility of these samples that were extracted from uh, these bodies, but together with it also the incredible immobility of the people from whom they were taken. The people who these Jarawas and the Ongyes were, uh, they had not traveled. They remained where they were. This, their body parts traveled. They, these body parts were then made to speak to various different political agendas, speak for various different political agendas, different intellectual uh, projects, uh, different techniques were used. And uh, all the while, these people were still there on that island. And what's more, I think if we read back uh, to some of the early, uh, earlier ethnographic accounts, which were not genetics, which were not uh, about even biometrics or anthropometry, but just like simple old school ethnography from the 19th century, another perplexing uh, aspect of this story emerged for me. 
so for instance, one of the people uh, who wrote about the Andamans pretty early on was another British colonial officer called E.H. Mann. That's an incredible name for an anthropologist, to, be, to have the last name Mann. But he was called E.H. Mann, really. And he studied uh, the uh, tribal people of these islands in the 1880s. What he found was quite incredible. And he, he said that even though the, uh, the Nicobaris are fairly cut off, but there are a lot of Nicobaris who are of mixed Burmese, Chinese, or, Mala uh, or Malaysian parentage, because there were short-term uh, sea routes that connected these islands to all these places. But even more remarkably, what he found was that there was w at least one family that he was able to track down which had mixed West African ancestry. Now, that was really mind-boggling. Like, how did a family, and it was already in its like third or fourth generation since the West African ancestor. Now, it turned out that the Danish crown had tried to colonize these islands in the 17th century and repeatedly failed. But then Denmark had been, had its hands heavily into uh, the slave trade of the west coast of Africa. And they had brought in uh, slaves from uh, Senegambia, most likely from what's the, uh, what used to be the Dahomey Empire, uh, to police these new colonies. Now, as luck would have it, malaria or something else killed off all the Danish white overseers, but the West African slaves survived. They found brides locally, intermarried, had families, and those families continued. And this might be a one-off case that has been remembered, but it sh goes to show that these islands were not as isolated as they were being imagined by modern geneticists. What's more, uh, this was not the only example. In 1859, so about... Uh, uh, 30 years prior to E.H. Mann, uh, India had witnessed one of the biggest rebellions against British rule, the so-called Indian Mutiny. And during this time, uh, once the British beat down the mutiny, they wanted to find a place to put all the prisoners in. And so they investigated the possibility of turning these islands into a penal colony. The man who was sent out to survey these islands as uh, to be a penal colony was a man named... Uh, uh, Frederick Moat, who was a British doctor who practiced in Calcutta. Now, Moat, in those days, it was not difficult to get from Calcutta to the islands. You had to go to Molnien, which was a uh, port in uh, Myanmar, and then take a short ferry ride over. Now, he found that the ferry crew, he gives us an excellent description of the ferry crew. And uh, if I can find it now, I will... Uh, I just want to share this uh, description that... Uh, the good doctor has left us. So he tells us uh, that the crew that he managed to recruit in Molmian to go to, uh, to these islands were, of course, made up of people who usually run these sea routes. And uh, he says that there was the self-dependent Anglo-Saxons, active and fiery Celts, fair Norsemen, stout Finlanders, swarthy Italians, and Maltese, distinguished by their bronzed faces and their guttural speech. Working alongside them was also a Frenchman and a hamburger, two Portuguese men, uh, two black Portuguese men, sorry, a number of West Africans, several Malayalis from uh, what is now Kerala in uh, India, a few Chinese carpenters, a couple of Burmese cooks, and a few Bengali manservants. 
So this incredibly diverse crew were all recruited because these were the people that plied these sea routes. Now, a number of recent historical accounts have begun to emerge about the maritime world of the Indian Ocean uh, through the centuries. And they all talk, um, e even if you don't want to uh, like go through all these historical accounts, which are frankly fairly boring, I would seriously recommend Amitav Ghosh's novels, the Ibis Trilogy, which is also set in this world of the Indian Ocean and its uh, traveling communities. And what, and Ghosh used to be an academic in an earlier life, and so he's, the novels are actually very well historically researched. What he has found and what other historians have found in a, and written about in a more boring vein is that uh, the Indian Ocean world was never this kind of an in disconnected, isolated world. It had long had contacts which were usually made up of shorter distance uh, sea voyaging uh, routes, which eventually by the 17th and 18th and into the 19th century become, uh, when the shipping technology improves, they become longer routes. But the people who work these routes remain the same. So even on British liners, like the big P&O liners of the Victorian era, the people who manned the lower desks, uh, decks were still these people from all over Asia. And they almost become a community unto themselves. Now my question is, if they had been running these sea routes to these islands, and these islands were plumb in the middle, middle of the Indian Ocean sea routes, if you look at any map of these routes, they intersect around those islands. If people had been going there for so long, is it possible that this one West African guy who seems to have fathered a family was the only one? I mean, fortunately or unfortunately, human beings, if they intermix with other human beings for a very long time, sooner or later, end up sleeping with them and having children and families. So this kind of, once you start figuring that in, our image of what these so-called isolates, as the geneticists call them, begins to change. Now, you might say that, well, of course, geneticists uh, account for this. They do look at what kind of time scales are involved in uh, genetic admixture. Yes, but those very techniques that they use for divining, and I will uh, stress the word I'm using here, divining, the time scales out of only DNA material are based on certain fundamental assumptions. Let me give you an example that will hopefully clarify this. So the Mexican government has, in recent times, undertaken its own Mexican genome project, trying to map its national genome. Now, Surprisingly, uh, one of the things that came up out of this genome unexpectedly was that some of the groups, um, uh, some of the tribal groups that are thought to have not had much contact with European people, turned out on the basis of gen uh, the genetic evidence to be seemingly younger than the obviously mixed groups that are derived from mixed European ancestry in Mexico. Now, how could you explain this? There were there were, so the Mexican scientists were in a bit of a, a fix about this can't surely be true that people who live in the uh, sort of Mexican highlands and who've obviously not had any historical contact with, not, not any extensive historical contact with European populations are younger than the populations that are derived most obviously from intermixture with Spanish and Portuguese uh, colonialists. The scientists then revisited what they were doing. They found that the, the basic technique used for um, arriving at these time scales was something called uh, the, um, the, yeah, the linkage disequilibrium. Dis I can never get that out 
right. So linkage disequilibrium, or LD for short, which looked at the size of haplotypes. Or uh, to give you a, the technical definition, it's the probability that certain genetic polymorphisms are randomly associated at two or more loci. Um, and it is this, the size of the haplotype that's used to uh, sort of guess how old the population group is. Now what happened in the Mexican case was that the Iberian Europeans who came in had amongst them some Africans. And the Africans had much older haplotypes, and these got mixed into the mixed population, whereas the sort of within scare quotes pure Amerindians who did not have that mixture were younger than the African populations, but they were not younger than this population. But, so this was messing up the haplotype. So they changed their uh, interpretation and they, um, uh, they sort of came to an uh, interpretation that was uh, more in keeping with the actual historical record that we have. Now the point behind citing the example is uh, that interpretation of genetic material and interpretation of time scales and histories out of genetic material is precisely that. It is an interpretation. And it is based on assumptions we are making. It's based on what kind of other uh, data we have. So if uh, it is, it's often uh, unfortunately pre uh, presented in the media as if this is just like an automatic thing. You do the test and the DNA tells you how old this, uh, how far back the hybridization or the divergence took, back, uh, took place. That's not the case. It requires interpretation. And it also means that this is why this kind of a faulty historical picture of these so-called isolated tribes actually has an impact in the genetic conclusions that are being arrived at. That you're, because uh, there is no, uh, because they're being presented as these completely bounded corpuscular groups that have never interacted with people. You bring one sort of assumption into interpreting their history and their time scale and even their DNA material. If you accounted for the fact that they were actually a group that was fairly connected for a very long time with people from all over, uh, well, maybe not all over, but from many parts of the Indian Ocean world coming here, including from West Africa, and contributing their genes to the mix. And then if you uh, take account of the fact that the number of samples that these studies are based on are woefully small, they're like 106 people. And then you reduce that, the actual evidence comes from four and 24, 28 people. Now 28 people's DNA may well have been influenced by all kinds of migration patterns, which have now been completely exercised from this. So anyway, the point behind my going on with all this is to say that these, I don't think it is accidental that the incredible mobility of uh, the biological tissues and the incredible immobility or alleged immobility, at least imaginal immobility of these tribal peoples have emerged at the same time. Mind you, the people who are making this claim, if you, we've gone very far from Sacramento, California, but we started there with these diasporic Indians who are trying to make a certain claim based on DNA evidence within a certain political climate in 2014 United States of America. And 
I don't think these things are in, uh, disconnected. The kind of ways in which the uh, tissues are moving, the values extracted from those tissues are moving, and at the same time, the kind of immobilization of the people whose bodies these tissues come from. I also find it ironic that this extremely conservative political group, which uh, usually shies away from and wants to even deny talking about caste oppression or marginal, marginality in India, would actually mobilize evidence that comes from the bodies of those very marginalized people. It is they who, and if you look at the longer history of genetic research, this is also something that of course goes back to what Joanna was saying, that the vast majority of this kind of anthropological research was done on these kind of marginal groups. They were called primitive, they were called isolates, but they were also socially extremely disenfranchised. And it's these groups whose bodies have now become grist to the mill of some kind of diasporic nationalism and nationalist grandstanding in a global context. So it's that contradiction that I find quite fascinating. Uh, I also want to share with you one other snippet. It's a, it's a tragic story that came out two years before the 2014 case that I was talking about, and it was carried in the British newspaper, The Guardian. Uh, the Guardian, uh, which often is, kind of plays the role of a whistleblower and uh, has lots of really disturbing videos about various things, published a rather shocking video uh, about the very Jarawa people who, uh, about whom we've been talking. Now this video, which uh, I, for obvious reasons, do not want to share with you here, it's very disturbing and the politics of viewing it and the ethics of it I'm not comfortable with. However, it, what it showed was Indian tourists, mainland Indian tourists, uh, going to these islands and throwing bananas at these uh, tribal people. Uh, it also showed, even more disturbingly, a policeman who's there allegedly to protect these tribals, who instead of stopping them, actually forces the tribals to dance for the tourists. And the sort of disgusting and risible sort of event is it's, it's really mind-blowing and jaw-dropping at the level of inhumanity that is uh, that is expressed in this encounter uh, what is even more uh, interesting uh, in a perverse way is that the international scandal that necessarily followed from guardians having published this video uh, led to the Indian authorities to take steps against the policeman what did they do they promised that the promotion he was due for would be delayed by six months now that that is the and it, it is, again, once again, it's, it's, I do not want to deny the incredible advances that India has made in many different directions. Uh, um, but at the same time, it is also incredibly disturbing for me that we are a country that has produced both this kind of cutting-edge genetic science and also reduced some of our own citizens to this level of inhumanity. It is this, I think, that is coming out of this kind of contra contradictory moment where we are living. That, uh, it's this, uh, it's the Sacramento Indi Hindu Indians on the one hand with their IT money and their pride in being, in in being Indian and not wanting to talk about all the other inequalities back in India because they feel that it makes India look bad. On the other hand, it is the very real exploitation and continued disenfranchisement and marginalization of the tribal and uh, lower caste peoples whose bodies provide the genetic evidence for this nationalist uh, argument. This contradiction, I really feel, is the kind of lurid moment we are living through. Uh, some amongst us have spoken of a post-human era. I, I'm not sure what that is all about, because all I see are actually human beings. Some of them are uh, 
corrupt, dehumanizing, um, and some of them are the victims of that. So what I see are, is really a post-human era, but not because objects or cyborgs have taken over, but because some humans are now being forced to be subhuman by a corrupt political economy, by increasing economic disparity, and by a dehumanizing science, while other human beings are aspiring to be super, supermen or ubermensch, if you will, for that, the original of that term, who want to live in their Urheimat. So, unfortunately, that's the grim note that I want to end with. Thank you. And one of the things that Project calls our attention to, and it's highly relevant to the, the Gila story, is that different people occupy different positions of power in these networks and part of the theme of the Gila story is that Henrietta Lacks herself did not control the destiny of the materials that were taken from her cancer cell and the question is um, do any of those from whom materials are taken have the power to control them? So we have a lot of questions on the table and a lot of issues raised and we have someone who has a microphone. It's going to be just like the Oprah show. <laughs> You're going to tell, so we would love to hear, hear questions of, of any kind, all of, for Joanna, for Projeet, for all of us. I'm going to have a sip of the water. My throat's all dry. Okay. Thank you. Hello. In the broadened sense of uh, what you've been talking about, how do we deal with the, the politicization of science and also the ignorance of science and the way that's affecting policy in our world today, particularly in America? Um, we got, we jumped right in. Thank you. Um, you got us there. Um, so I think one of the ways we do that is by having forums like this to come together to hear different kinds of stories about science, maybe different kinds of stories than ones that get reported in the news. Um, one of the things that, um, you know, I'm an avid reader of the New York Times, but um, I'm often frustrated by its science coverage because it doesn't tell the kind of stories that I, as a historian of science, know are there. Um, stories that aren't just about the newest innovation that's emerged or the new study, but stories that help us understand how that knowledge even got to be made. And I think that when you start, part of the reason why the Gila, the Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks was such a sensation wasn't just because of um, the kind of politics of, of the story, but because I think people were really fascinated um, to understand how biomedical knowledge, the knowledge that keeps us healthy, um, gets made, um, you know, and really interested in understanding where do these um, knowledge, these knowledge, these forms of knowledge, these innovations come from. So one of the things that, I, I, and I'm, I'm eager to hear what my fellow um, historians say, but I think that um, studying the history of science has really changed the way I think about science, and it's changed the way that I understand it mattering to me and to um, people it's not, the history of science itself started by scientists um, who wanted to sort of think about how they got to where they were. Um, and I think increasingly, you don't, we can't live, we can't claim that science doesn't touch our lives, science, medicine, technology. It saturates everything. We've all got iPhones or, you know, in our pockets. Where did those come from? How do we make knowledge? And, and what kinds of, who are the bodies upon which this knowledge gets made is a really important question for me. And it, perhaps when we start to ask that and to think about that and realize the ways our own bodies are being asked to make knowledge, to participate in science, um, maybe we can reframe the way we think about the role of politics and science.
yeah, I, I'll just ditto all of that, but <laughs> <laughs> only add that I, I also think that it's interesting because that's why I wanted to start with the Sacramento story, that the American politics has also become so much more complex because of the presence of groups like the group I was talking about. And getting at even understanding what the political stakes are in, uh, in trying to so they were presenting this as a kind of neutral scientific position, which it wasn't. So even understanding not only how the science mecha mechanism actually works is, I think, exactly as Joanna was saying, that history of science or social studies of science are more important, but also understanding the, uh, that our politics has got incredibly more complex in uh, these times. And so we also, we don't, just need to think in more complex terms about science. We also need to think in more complex terms about the politics rather than in terms of sort of binaries, which unfortunately all over the world we seem to be doing all the time. If I could just add to that, there is, there is um, a threat of anti-scientism in um, many places and particularly in the United States. And, and our, the story we're telling is not an anti-science story. It's a very difficult story about the, the contributions of science, how much it means in a techno-scientific culture, and how important it is uh, on so many levels. And so for historians of science and science study scholars, recent events oriented around things like climate change and, and um, uh, maybe biological sciences and evolution. Some of those movements are, again, as Projeet says, incredibly complicated politically because um, the, the, the criticism of science is coming from places that historians of science are not sympathetic with. Well, thank you for your talk. Um, you're both telling these stories about the unwieldy nature of data and objects, and in some senses, life. Uh, so Joanna, you're focusing on the technologies of stopping time. Um, and with recent stories about the impermanence of things like permafrost um, leading to outbreaks of anthrax um, or threatening seed banks that were supposed to be permanent seed banks, um, and an example from the lab, the seemingly unstoppable replication of the HeLa cell and its contamination of other different types of projects. I was wondering if you might comment on uh, sort of how do scientists reckon with that wildness of life uh, while in the lab, that bloody mess that you were talking about in the lab? That's a great question, um, and it's actually something that I dealt with um, after telling the story about these indigenous blood samples, I realized that there were all these other places where um, freezing, science, scientists were appealing to low temperature as a way of containing this wildness, including resisting you know, death um, at the level of the human, um, resisting um, the melting of glaciers. Um, and what I think, and that's a, a book that, we, that I published with a co-author called Cryopolitics, um, where we wanted to think about the politics of not just making things live, but not letting them die. But I love that question about how do scientists cope with the wildness? And this is, I think, such a good question because it shows the kinds of concerns that scientists really do have that don't make it into the public, um, except for maybe when a disaster happens, when a lab gets gets flooded, um, you know, like the Svalbard Doomsday Seed Vault, which is supposed to um, protect us when apocalypse comes, but was perhaps one of the first victims. Um, you know, 
the ways in which scientists are always um, struggling with the imperfections of their technologies and their ideals, um, they have to reckon with the practices. And one of the things that I think about a lot um, is I think most scientists are um, incredibly um, pragmatic and practical, but they have constraints too. Um, they can't get the funding that they need, or they can't get people to invest in the systems of protection they need to contain, um, you know, their research. Um, but I often am reminded um, when I do this work of a quote from Jurassic Park. Um, um, Ian Malcolm, uh, the chaos theoretician, um, the line is, life finds a way. Um, and so what I think I learned through these practices of, of um, efforts to stop time or control time or redirect time um, is that the future and life in the future always surprises us. Um, and it can surprise us in really incredible ways, um, in miraculous ways, and it can surprise us in ways that give us a sense of humility. Um, and I think that sense of humility um, is never been more important as we um, create new kinds and new forms of life. So. Um, it's a great it's a great question and one that maybe orients us to a new register of how we think about these issues. I I wanted to take the uh, conversation in a different direction because we've been talking about human genetics, but we also have a microbiome. Um, maybe you could talk about some of the ownership <laughs> uh, issues in regards to our microbiome. Mm -hmm. um. I have a few thoughts about this. Um, I, I talk about it, um, I kind of conclude with it um, in the last chapter of the book because um, I, I'm also fascinated by the way in which, um, you know, scientists started out um, in the 60s trying to salvage blood from indigenous humans that they saw as um, kind of isolated or adapted to their environment and they wanted to see them as humans in the environment. And with the advent of the microbiome program or project, um, humans have become the environment, right? Like are we just a kind of, um, uh, carrying case for, um, for, for microbes. Um, and, um, and these ownership, ownership issues persist um, and, and continue. And I actually think that even though we've turned maybe from the macrocosm into the microcosm, it's almost been an intensification of these issues. So um, what I can say, there are a lot of ways I could answer your question. But one, what I could say that's very on point, actually, it's not such a different direction than where we've been, is that the ways in which the microbiome project's been figured draws directly on the international biological program, thinking about, oh, well, we need to get the microbiomes of indigenous peoples. Um, so this recapitulation of this idea that their microbiomes are the most diverse, are the most unique, um, and they're, gonna, they're the ones that are going to help us um, non-indigenous peoples understand ourselves. And um, what it which just kind of really amazed me, the kind of one-to-one -one mapping on of this language um, into the microbiome project, which even the logos are exact, the logo of the microbiome project and the International Biological Program are almost identical, except the microbiome project, it's like, um, um, and it, it's it's multi-layered. It's like the same logo of like the symbol of man um, with the Vitruvian man, you know, in the middle. With then, um, but then it's multiple Vitruvian men and multiple, um, you know, symbols of man. So it, I I guess I see it as um, as an intensification. And also, I guess the last thing I could say is that um, 
poop is the new blood. Um, <laughs> Perjit and I often talk about um, an emerging field of, um, excuse me, of shit studies, um, because um, you know this is this has become a new sample that um, people. I mean, people have always collected stool samples, but it's becoming more and more um, prized. Um, and I was at a, a, a talk at Yale um, in um, their biobanking initiative, and and I was surprised to see they were saying, you know what, this is what we really need to focus on. And of course, stool samples have different. They take up a little bit more space, they're a little bit harder to get, um, you know, so there are all kinds of new issues emerging. So it's a fantastic question and the microbiome is definitely a place to watch as we see how these issues continue to um, play out and unfold. Okay, I have a much more sort of, again, more of an anecdotal answer than a, a lovely one like <laughs> Joanna usually does. Uh, so. I know, again, the way that it's playing out in India, where, and my interest is precisely how these high-tech things play out in societies which are racked with radical forms of disenfranchisement and inequality. And one of the things that's happening is, so there's a field that's emerging called Ayur genomics, which is a <laughs> hybrid between Ayurveda and genomics, which is trying to resuscitate suscitate a lot of traditional forms of difference into a language of genomics. And so, again, diet is one of the major flashpoints uh, around which social divisions in South Asia are organized between castes, between religions, like you have this, I don't have that, you can eat this, I can't eat that, etc., etc. And that whole thing is making a comeback in, through some of the microbiome language that, oh no, this is good because it's bad to have beef because it's, it's somehow related to your microbiota and therefore it's like, so again, recently we've, we've been having huge problems about uh, people being actually lynched because they were suspected of having eaten beef. So it's, it's got to a crazy limit. And it's not just about the beef, but also about other kinds of diets. And so again, how social divisions, which are much older and which are working, of course, within this context of gross inequality is being repurposed and refashioned with its entanglements with the new microbiome genomics into this new field, which is, I mean, Ayur genomics has other stuff other than that as well, but some of it is this. So that's a very half-baked anecdotal answer. <laughs> Sorry. When you start talking about uh, food and nutrition, you bring in all the epigenetics. Well, that, the, the epigenetics part, there's actually uh, uh, a scientist at Emory uh, University in America of Indian origin who's even been claiming that theories of karma are actually valid and it affects epigenetics. But he, I mean, I, I don't know the politics of that research yet. I've just like looked at it from the corner of my eye. I've not engaged with it yet. But again, like it's playing out in really unexpected. It goes back to what Joanna was saying. Like you, you sort of foresee a thousand and one futures and the one that you didn't expect it happens. And it, it's like that. It said, I think that is uh, putting all these conversations in the global context does that often, that you see the, the one future that you'd never dreamt of, like that wasn't even on your horizon and you see that's happening. But just that our worlds today are organized in such a way that that's not happening somewhere out there, it's happening in Emory University in the, in the US that somebody's trying to prove karma theory through epigenetics. And also of interest historically is the relationship between epigenetics and the incredible rejection of Lamarckism and the inheritance of acquired characters, which was so central to the rise of modern evolutionary theory. So that kind of interesting tang entangling 
um, an, an unexpected future. Yeah. We have one last question. We're almost out of time. Yeah, go ahead. No, you, you. Yeah. Yeah, there's just been a revision of 45 CFR 46 mm -hmm. that came out on January 19th. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that it does is to try to improve mm -hmm. the, the process of informed consent. Now, it's only permissive, so you don't know if the IRB establishment is going to change anything or not, but it is permissive uh, in the sense that it is encouraging to simple, straightforward explanations of what consent means, to test to find out if people actually know what they're consenting to, and most importantly, uh, the reason I'm, I'm uh, speaking at all, to separating the issue of legal liability, which is something created by institutional lawyers, from that of the consent process itself. That's really important. Uh, so I'm, I'm sort of on the, I'm a, I've, I've collected biological specimens, among other things. Um, on the other hand, you have this huge data bank uh, that, of DNA at NIH, where the declaration of the institution, which is most powerful, is that that material is no longer human subject material. That's right. And that strikes me as, and has for years, as the grossest uh, ethical violation that I can think of. It's on a massive scale. And on the other hand, researchers who, individual researchers who work with the same material are in fact subject to treating them as material from living human subjects. Yeah, so this is, I just want to say thank you again. Like, this is, I think, amazing. You get to see the ways in which these issues are playing out, both from patients and researchers, and I, I agree. And I think that one thing I would add just to these new, um, the new changes um, are that they actually opted um, to um, not have researchers go back and reconsent for studies, um, with the idea being that it would hinder um, the progress of research. And so we might kind of ask ourselves about, you know, is progress always Im improvement? Um, is progress, you know, is more research what we need, or do we need different kinds of research? And so I, I think, and, and I think your point about the fact that legally those samples aren't considered to be human subjects um, is partly where we get to the larger questions that someone asked before about different worldviews. Um, so members of communities like the Yanomami, um, you know, say, well, that's not our worldview. You know, like we don't we don't accept that. Um, and so one of the consequences of when you've got these very highly mobile um, scientific enterprises traveling beyond the kinds of ethical norms of, an, of, a, of, a, of a state, right? Um, you have these real um, um, discordancies um, between what it is we're dealing with here. And so I, I just I thank you for raising the, all of those facets of the issue. Unless, unless you don't, unless scientists decide to do something in the future with this blood that it turns out people say, well, I know I said I consented, but like this is just beyond, right? And that's the challenge. One, one little thing I'll add is that uh, I don't know enough about these latest changes, but uh, in the case of drug trials, for instance, which is of course admittedly a very different context, but one of the things that's come out is that while the US has great laws, 
and it insists that those laws of consent are followed in other countries as well, many of those other countries, such as India, just does not have the adequate resources to fully implement that. And however, then the US says that, well, we're, it's not our job to, we can't uh, like poke our nose into another sovereign country and see how well they're implementing their uh, protocols. And so this, uh, my colleague at Penn, Adriana Petrina, calls this uh, ethical variability. So it allows a certain leeway for uh, shoddily consented to uh, drug trials be, still be accepted because it's been rubber stamped by Indian authorities, which however are so badly overstretched that they can't really fully uh, do justice to this. So I'm also wondering because, for instance, like I said, that this paper that I was citing was being cited also in other American journals, but that research, what does consent mean there in that kind of context? And would all the countries have the adequate apparatus to enforce this? How is the US, because it's gonna also raise questions of international sovereignty, if the US wants to actually directly implement uh, ethical protocols. So I think it's again, I mean, it's not an issue that in the global context becomes so with scientists, not only US scientists working abroad, but scientists who are based abroad, say an Indian scientist doing research in, in India and then publishing something in maybe a New Zealand journal, which then gets cited in an American journal and starts entering the, the American academic mainstream. How are we gonna like deal with it there? So I think that the implementation, the devil proverbially is in the details. So we'll see how this plays out. <laughs> I think that's a perfect way to end our discussion. The, the, the symmetry of ignorance. Um, I want to thank our wonderful speakers. We could. Um, and, uh, and also, I would like a final, final round of applause for our fabulous audience, which you guys raised such amazing questions that were perfectly in line with the way we imagined this. So for our audience. Thank you for listening and please visit chstm.org slash immortal life to continue the conversation. <laughs>